Welcome to the Taylor and Jen podcast. Mornings with Taylor and Jen. You have to tighten the whozamawatsit that says every time you go with the thingamajig. I would ask you to do that again, but you would. I suppose I have a little bit of admiration and respect for my friend's husband who says in his life at a time there can be only one of these. I just don't know how it's possible to live like this. What, what, what's he What's he keeping? Well, I was at play practice and we were all looking for pencils that had been sharpened with actual erasers on them. And, and, and in my life, wherever I am, I have a difficult time finding A, pens that work and B, pencils that have lead and erasers at the same time. When I find a pencil that has lead <laughs> and eraser, I feel like I have been given a bountiful gift. You can never find them when you need them. Though. No, but my friend's husband... In his world, at a time, he has one pen and one pencil, and he uses them until they're done, and then he replaces the one pen and the one pencil with another one pen and one pencil. So does he just have like a package somewhere that he goes to and it's like, because you don't you don't even buy pens in one pack. I don't know. I didn't ask that because I was standing there in dumb, <laughs> dumbfounded silence. Just think about it for a second. Mm-hmm. How organized and sterile of a world would it be if you only had one pen and one pencil at a time? Jen, I honestly can't imagine it. I, I, can't. I think you might have made this up. I did it. I, I really, I promise. I didn't make it up. I have a friend, a new friend, whose husband has one pen and one pencil in his life at a time. What's your uh, What's your read on this situation, Dennis? I, I do believe that what Jen was just speaking of is, is heresy. That's just, I don't know. I can't describe it in any other way. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is you're with us. Yeah. You have a bucket of pens and a bucket of pencils. Currently in my trunk, I have a bag of pens and I distribute them at the job site. So there you go. I still keep several for me. Uh, currently in the side pocket of my car, I probably have, I have a Sharpie. I have a tire gauge and I think four pens. I can hear you rustling through them. That's so yep. wonderful. Hey, that Sharpie is worth something. Yep. Do not lose that's, it. That's the good stuff. I just wanted to share that with you because I'm with you, Jen. I was just dumbfounded and <laughs> bewildered. I have pens by the bucket. I never have them when I need them. I mean, it is crazy. Pens. Who who would have thought we would have been talking so much about pens? People have strong opinions about them, and they do very particular things with them. I have one in every color. Oh, I have them on my desk. I have them in my bag. I have them at home. Okay, wait. You have one pen of every color. What what color? Every color. Red, blue, purple, orange, yellow, turquoise. Oh okay, my. Are these all in that one pen that we all used to have that had all the different, you know, little things that you would oh, click? Clicky? Yeah. No. No. No, no, no. Not a clicky pen. I like pen. gel pens. I'm very big on I like gel pens. Okay, so you have a gel pen in every color and yes. you have them everywhere in your life? Yes, because I use whatever I'm wearing. Oh, my. So if I'm wearing purple, I use a purple pen. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You coordinate the pens with your outfit. I do. (laughs) What color are you wearing today? Purple. Purple. So you're going to have a purple pen all day? I am. What happens if you're wearing purple and you can't find your purple pen? Oh, I have multiples. (laughs) (laughs) Lest you think that it has met an early demise, the pen still persists. I mean, we don't use our handwriting very much anymore. No. 
But we still feel very strongly about pens, apparently. Yeah, you have some feelings about your pens, Carol? I've got a first, second, and third string pen. <laughs> are you for real? Yes. The third string are the ones that I leave on my desk for anybody who randomly needs to steal a pen. Yep, okay. naturally. Like Taylor. The second string only comes out when I'm at work. Other than that, I've got it hidden in one of my drawers. Okay. <laughs> Those are the best ones that I've stolen from other people. Oh. So I'm just kind of recycling. <laughs> Now, what's the first string? The first string are the ones that I really like to write with, and I hide them, and I only use them for me. Nobody oh. else can touch them. You take those pens seriously. Pens are very important to yeah. you. Well, nurses are demanding with their pens. I should have known you I were a nurse. I should have known you were a I nurse. I should have known. Should've- <laughs> Sometimes I wish God would yell a little more. Like, specifically in those times when I am trying to figure out what on earth I'm supposed to do. Like, there's a big decision coming up, and I just can't really figure out what the right direction is. I kind of wish God would just sound down with this booming voice in a spotlight and say, here's the way you need to go. But so often when you look in the Bible, God's not yelling. He's a still, small voice. He's whispering. He's speaking softly. And uh, Kirk Franklin, he's an artist who appears on the uh, For King and Country song together, actually talked a little bit about why he thinks God spends less time yelling than he does whispering. God does not yell. He whispers. Because when you yell, you are competing against other noise. And the reason why God will not yell at you songs, the reason why God will not yell at you ideas, the reason why God uh, will always whisper is because... When you whisper to someone, they are in a specific space and position to be able to hear you. If I were to whisper something to you in Australia, you can hear me because you're too far. But if you were right next to me, whatever I whisper, you would be able to hear. So what am I saying? Stay close. Bedtime. It's a tough time. And I just want to let all of the children out there know, even though you're probably not listening, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like bedtime either. Nobody likes bedtime. I don't like, I mean, I like sleeping. I just don't like bedtime. And, And so I understand the need to maneuver your way out of it and to stall, which is what kids are so good at. I was reading Facebook the other day and my friend was trying to put his daughter down to bed. And she was kind of, you know, seemed like she was going in the right direction until the very moment he's tucking her in, <laughs> oh, about no. to head out and turn off the light. Thinking she goes, he was safe. Daddy. 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 What, what, honey? Daddy, how did they invent concrete? <laughs> like, the very first time. Who, what is the history of concrete. How old is this child? She's got to be like three or four. And she wanted to know where concrete came from? No, she didn't want to go to bed. (laughs) So Taylor's friend's daughter all of a sudden wanted to know everything about concrete as a three-year-old. Because she was about to go to bed and anything is better than sleeping. Stall tactics employed by your children so they don't have to go to bed. Every night doesn't ever fail. Mommy, I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry. I'm starving. I'm so, you have to get me some food right now. I won't make it. Now it's been so long since dinner time. Can't go eight hours. <laughs> I won't make it. Not just I'm hungry. I need a snack. Like I'm starving. I'm starving. And 
sometimes I give in because I'm like, well, the poor child, she's starving. I mean, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Food is a real need. Sometimes I have a canola bar before bed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've heard that carbs before bed actually releases serotonin and it makes you sleep better. So yeah. there you go. There you go. Absolutely. So she's all over it. She's all over the salt tactics. <laughs> Just like Lindsay, who just called and said that her daughter's stall tactics sometimes work. Mm-hmm. I, I remember one time, I mean, my children would gang up on me and try to <laughs> stall bedtime. You know, they would do everything they could not to go to bed. And I get it. I love that childhood enthusiasm for life where going to bed is just something they don't want to do. Yeah. You know, so one night, oh man, I can't. I, Obviously, reading age, Piper was probably 11, so Ben would have been nine, okay? Didn't want to go to bed. Didn't want to go to bed. I so desperately wanted them to go to bed because (laughs) I wanted to go to bed or crash or something. And I walk into the room after multiple warnings, and I'm like, what are you doing? And Piper said, I'm reading Revelation. And at that time, she was into a lot of those, like, post-apocalyptic kind of books. Oh, yeah. Like, you know. The young adult novels. The young adult novels. And I was like, I don't, is this a new series or something? I don't really care. Just put it down. It's time for you to go to bed. And she's like, no, mom, I'm reading the book of Revelation in the in the Bible. <laughs> and I went, you're reading the Bible? And she said, yes. And I said, well, you don't have to go to bed. Read it as much as you want. You want to read the Bible? If you're reading the Bible on your own, you can read it as long as you want. All of a sudden, I hear Ben's voice. Wait, what? So if I read the Bible, do I have to go to bed? I'm like, nope. If you read the Bible, you can stay up. He's like, where's my Bible? <laughs> you're not going to tell him, like, put down that Bible and I'm sleep, young man. We're going to say that. So the kids knew if they, they gotcha. did their devotions before they went okay. to bed, they could stay up. Let me use yeah. spiritual growth as a stall tactic. Take that, mom. <laughs> Dr. Heidi, as much as we would love it, our kids do not stay one age. They don't. They grow up. And especially with teens, that means that our parenting style has to grow up, too. What does that look like? I need help. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I have a friend that needs help. Sure, sure. Of course. Let's talk about your friend. Yes, yes. So when your kids are little, you get to say things like, because I said so. For a two-year-old, you want them to wash their hands for the because I said so. That does not work with middle schoolers and teenagers. No, it doesn't. Their job is to grow up and to become thinking members of society that can assess their own behavior, decide whether it's a good choice or a bad choice, and then act responsibly out of that kind of internal assessment. They do not all of a sudden become good at that. They need practice. Mm. But what practice looks like is them saying, Mom, why? Dad, why? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Why can't I do this? And so they're asking all these questions, but it's really because they're learning how to think and learning how to make decisions. And it's our job as parents not to just control their behavior, but to help them become fully functioning members of society and fully functioning believers. This is a spiritual issue. They need to learn how to think for themselves. It's not just about curfew. Hmm. So what this looks like is your teenager comes in like, hey, I think I should have a later curfew. You're like, no, absolutely not. We already talked about this, right? (laughs) Why are you questioning me? Instead of responding that way, Think about stepping and say, okay, wait a minute. Why do you think it's a good idea that you stay out later tonight? Find out what their motivation is. You may or may not agree with their motivation, and you may or may not decide that, yes, you can stay out a little bit later tonight to go to the volleyball game, but then come right home. But having that conversation and slowing it down communicates respect to your teen and lets them know you're not 
just a black and white parent, you're recognizing that they might actually have a legitimate perspective that you're willing to consider. I'm curious about you, Mm -hmm. Taylor, because you have such a great relationship with your parents. What did it look like when you were 14, 15 and 16? And I mean, was there a lot of the give and take in the negotiation or were you just like, okay? I I was a very okay based kid. But but here's the thing that they did a lot of times is they would give me choices. But it was Mm -hmm. it wasn't like a fill in the blank. It was a multiple choice. Sure. Do you want to do this or do you want to do this? Not what do you want to do? Wow. And so they gave me the kind of the independence to choose something, but they still kept some boundaries around there. So I would choose something that was okay. It's like a teenager in a playpen. There you go. (laughs) I didn't even realize I was in it. (laughs) But that's great because you're learning to think it through and you're not feeling like do this or else. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's the do this or else that breeds rebellion for some kids and anxiety in other kids because some kids internalize that stress. You know, and I think it's great when you're giving them those choices to have a built in feedback loop. Okay, you don't want me emailing your teachers about your grades. Okay, you can take on that responsibility. But here's how we will know that it's working. Mm. If you are able to successfully manage your own homework responsibility and grades, if you're able to maintain this level of performance, then that's fine. I will not email your teachers. However, if you get behind, if you're struggling, you know, at this level, then I'm going to have to get involved. So parenting becomes an if then statement. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And as you're determining what success looks like for them taking on more responsibility, is it a good idea to expect a little bit less success than there was when you were taking control? Or do they need to maintain the same level of right. the schoolwork thing? Right. Like if, if they miss one assignment, are they suddenly, okay, that didn't work? Or do you kind of expect them to fall off a little and hopefully improve? Depends on what your goal is. If your goal is just to have a good performer, you better crack down on that. But if your goal is to help them understand how to manage their own behavior and how to manage struggles and hard things, then you do not want to come down like a hammer. Mm. You want to slow down and say, well, your strategy didn't work quite super well there. What else do you want to try before I get involved? Right? Do you think that's what God does with us? <laughs> I mean, I he, has, so. <laughs> he has so much grace right. with us. Right. You know, right. he doesn't come down with a hammer every time right. we mess up or I'd be a grease spot on the wall. Right. You know, <laughs> I know that we aren't perfect and we can't parent exactly the way God parents us, Mm -hmm. but it seems as though grace is a big part of the way he loves us as his children. And it's such a gift to our kids because when we give them that grace, one thing we're also saying is like, you're going to figure it out. You haven't learned how to quite do this young adult teenage thing yet, but I am confident that you will figure out how to be a good teenager. I'm confident that you'll figure out how to manage your life. And we're predicting that success for them. And that's where their confidence comes from. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come from being perfect. Confidence comes from I can figure this out and I'm going to be okay. So it's often accompanied by your extended arm snapping. Or if you can't snap like Taylor, then you just kind of wag your hand around. Wave desperately. But you have a word. It's the word that you use when you don't know what the word is. It's a wild card word. What's that word for you? Whatchamacallit. Whatchamacallit. Now, see, here's the problem. That is a candy bar. Uh, no, a whatchamacallit is anything you want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also a candy bar. Often like I the- want it to be a candy bar, Jen. <laughs> it's the real name of a candy bar. But here's the deal. If you ask someone to hand you a whatchamacallit and they think you're talking about a candy bar, did you really lose? No, you get free candy, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, Joy, what's your word? 
I have two. Oh, go for it. Growing up, I remember my mom always saying a thingamabob or a whatchamafligger. <laughs> what? Okay, the first one I've heard, but not the second. What? Whatchamafligger? <laughs> a thingamabob or whatchamafligger? Fligger. It's over in the whatchamafligger. Whatchamafligger. That's a lot of work to say. I love it. <laughs> I would have laughed every time. So if someone's like... What do you need to fix this? You're like, well, you need that whatchamafligger over there. Or you, it's a whatchamafligger. If you don't know what it's called, it's a whatchamafligger. Just that whatchamafligger. No. I suppose you could just use the word thing. But that's, that's boring. It's so boring. I think all of us, though, I think we have a word that we use when we don't know what the real word is. My word is whoosie what's it. Whoosie what's it. Whoosie what's it. That's good. Okay. Yeah, that's my go-to. Dan, you're recently married. Does your wife know what whoosie what's it means? Never. Never, ever. <laughs> does she ever know what it means? So what happens when yeah. you need the whoosie what's it and she doesn't know what it means? I just look for it myself. Okay, yeah. so here you go. This is a very smart woman. She will never know what you mean, even though she knows what you mean. Do you catch what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Mine is thingy what, mm-hmm. and yours is... Dealy bobber. Those are our wild card words. You the can use word... them in any context, yep. and it means what you want it to mean. Exactly. Do you have a wild card word, Tina? I actually have three. Oh, wow. Wow. Sometimes I call it a whatchamacallit. Okay. A thingamabopper. Mm-hmm. Bopper. Or a doohickey. Doohickey! <laughs> Oh, doohickey is a good one. That's my mother used. Doohickey do makes me feel happy. I have mechanically inclined children, and so they'll be working on something, and I'll say, hey, what's that doohickey? <laughs> and they'll tell me, and I'll be like, oh, so what's that thingamabopper you're using on that? And, yeah, they just all know. Mom's they know. Now. They know what you're talking they about. They know. They know. If other <laughs> people understand it when you say it, it's a real word. <laughs> Exactly. I raise them. They know what these three words mean, and they get it. It's like a family unit language. You make this sound, and it means just tell mom what the carburetor is. (laughs) She'll she'll get it eventually. It's so much more fun, though, to watch her have to use those words and Mm -hmm. try to make the sound of it, and then, you know, explain what she thinks it does. Yeah, you have to tighten the who's a it that says... Every time you go reek, 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 with a thingamajig. I would ask you to do that again, but you would. <laughs> oh, the funny things that happen in church. Mm-hmm. I think they're funnier because you're really, you know, you're not supposed to laugh a lot in church, are you? At least that's how I was brought up. You right. know, la- laughter is not a spiritual thing. <laughs> God didn't make funny things like platypuses. <laughs> That's not true, of course. I mean, laughter is yeah. something that God gave us. So we might as well enjoy when funny things happen in church. This doesn't come from a church in the States. Actually, it was from some missionaries uh, serving in South America. Okay. My buddy in college told the story of when his parents were new at the church, they were still learning Spanish, and they got called up to the front by the, the pastor to introduce themselves. Well, they were still new with the language, so they didn't have it quite mastered yet. But his mom gave it a good try. And she stood up in front of the church, and she introduced herself, and she was trying to say that she was very embarrassed because she, her language wasn't good. So she stood up in front of the church, and she said, Soy muy embarazado, which it doesn't mean embarrassed in Spanish. It means I'm very pregnant. Um, and the problem was that she really drove it home because the pastor had called her up. So she said, 
soy muy embarazado, es la falta del pastor. Which means I'm very pregnant, and it's the pastor's fault. No! So, not a great introduction to the church. All right, Lori, do you have a church mishap story? This was about 15 years ago. I'm from a small church, about 50 members, and our communion was a piece of bread, and you dip in a cup, but you walk up to the front and then back to your seat. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, the pastor's son, who was probably about eight or nine, seemed to always be the first one to go up and dip his bread. And he would really dip it pretty good. Well, I watched one time, and as he pulled it up, instead of looking more purplish on his bread, it looks a little browner. I'm like, well, that's kind of weird, you know? Well, he turned, as he put the bread in his mouth, he made this face, just like, oh, my goodness, like, what was this taste, this face? And I'm like, okay, what's going on? Uh-oh. So when I got up there, I thought, well, I'm not dipping mine very much, then, and I barely touched whatever the juice was. Come to find out later, apparently the store or whoever picked up the juice was out of grape juice. They picked up prune juice. (laughs) (laughs) Bet you he wasn't the first one to go up after that. Well, I think he's a little more cautious next time. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a church mishap story? I wanted to uh, just share my fiasco with the seven deadly faces of sin that I was trying to uh, teach a children's group. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's a big topic for kids. You were supposed to get an enamel pot. They showed you all the instructions. You traced the faces, you know, like jealousy, different things. And then you were to light them on fire and put them in the pot. Wow. And uh, by the time we reached gluttony or whatever one of them was, the pot was hot underneath. Yeah. And the kids were saying, I think it's smoking. So I had all these children in this room. I have a smoking pot. I jerk it up. It took the carpet with it. it oh, made, no! It was adhered to the carpet. Perfect <laughs> circle. Right in the middle of the floor. And things are still smoking. So I have to lead the children out into the <laughs> auditorium and explain to the pastor what happened. Yeah, so it got fixed, but it was quite a deal. Yeah, but those kids have never forgotten about the seven deadly sins. <laughs> they remember that lesson. <laughs> We're going through big things like a global pandemic and an election mm-hmm. and division in our country and even in our families. But there's also other things that have happened in 2020. And, and especially when a big event happens and there is a breaking away let's just put it that way and there's division among you and other friends or you and a former spouse or something along those lines when something like that happens there's a lot of people that you have to forgive Mm -hmm. the lord tells us you have to forgive doesn't matter how bad they hurt you how clearly in the wrong they were we're called to forgive each other called to forgive period Mm -hmm. and that is hard enough but sometimes in those situations There's one person that's the hardest to forgive. I mean, hands down, it's Mm -hmm. just the hardest person to forgive. Yourself. Yeah. And I think (laughs) it can be easy to say, well, wait, 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 wait. How do you forgive yourself? In general, like if I deeply wounded you, Jen, and the next day I came in and said, hey, good news, I've forgiven me. How would I feel about that? You would not be happy. No. But we need to find ways to forgive ourselves, even though we're the ones who wronged ourselves and need forgiving. 
And in his book, The Art of Forgiving, Louis B. Smedes kind of talks about this. And he says, we as humans have this weird ability to kind of split with ourselves. Yep. You've been at the party where you've been like, self, stop talking so much. <laughs> stop laughing so loud. Stop cutting that person off with your own story. Let somebody else say a thing. I believe it is a God-given level of consciousness that we have to be able to step outside of ourselves and say, okay, I see myself acting like this and it needs to stop. And so Smedes says, because we have this kind of splitting that happens with us, We can and should forgive ourselves. He says, we feel a need to forgive ourselves because the part of us that gets blamed feels split off from the part that does the blaming. Hmm. One self feels despised and rejected by the other. We are exiled from our own selves. Of course, that's no way to live. And that's why we need to forgive ourselves and why it makes sense to do us. Because when you don't forgive yourself, you are ripped apart inside and forgiving yourself is the only way to heal the split. Okay, so we know we need to forgive ourselves, but then the question, of course, comes up, how do you do that? We'll be getting to that coming up in just a little bit. How can you forgive yourself? Well, that's a good (laughs) question. And as somebody who has had to do that because of my piece in a big issue, that was the first thing I needed to do. I needed to recognize, okay, What's my piece? What's my part? Mm -hmm. Dr. Heidi says that all the time. You have to figure out what your piece is. And that's an important part because if you sweep that under the rug, that's just like pretending someone who hurt you didn't hurt you. I figured it out. And then I'm like, okay, at some point I have to stop beating myself up over Mm -hmm. this. At some point I have to forgive myself. And even though I may not feel like I deserve forgiveness, God says I do. Mm Mm-hmm. And he trumps me. Yep. <laughs> so God's got the authority there. All right. Okay. Lewis B. Smedes says you got to forgive yourself. God says he can forgive me. How do I go about doing it? Well, I like this. Lewis B. Smedes has three very practical things you can do. And the first one is tell yourself you've forgiven yourself. Wow. He says you might feel a little silly doing it, but look yourself in the eyes in a mirror mm-hmm. and say, God has forgiven you and I forgive you too. I think that's very valid. Right. Just to act because I so often try to will myself into feeling forgiven without actually just saying, I forgive myself. I mm-hmm. can't hold this over my head any longer. So mm-hmm. I'm freeing myself from my own blame. Okay. So tell yourself you forgive yourself. What next? Tell yourself again. <laughs> just, <laughs> because the first time probably won't take. <laughs> if it takes you forever to forgive somebody else and you have to do it over and over, how much harder is it going to be for you who was often your hardest critic? Yeah. Oh, oh we are too, aren't we? You're oh. going to have to do it again. Okay. And here's the last one. Even if you don't feel forgiven, act like you're forgiven. Mm. Stop punishing yourself by saying, I can't go into this other relationship. I don't deserve to have good friends. I don't deserve to have this. If God has removed your sins as far as the East is from the West, you got to stop acting like they're right there in your back pocket. I am nearly recovered from the horrific injury I sustained earlier this week. You sustained a horrific injury. I'm I'm right here every day. I didn't I, hear about it. Haven't you seen horrific... how stiffly my neck is moving? <laughs> it's you, you never know how much you use your neck until you hurt it. It was horrific? What did it you... It was what, very what bad, Jen. I, I got up in the morning, as I often do, and I, I went into the bathroom to get ready for the day, and I had a... You know what those like nice morning stretches, like your arms go way oh. out and your back arches. Oh, yeah. You just feel all the sleep fading away. Oh, that's so nice. And I kind of put my arms behind my head, oh. and then I pulled my neck. <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah. 
I just like my arms went behind my head and I felt it. It was like a crunching, twang, a crunch, a little crunch. Was it a crunch or a twang? It was a snap, a crackle, and a pop. You got bingo on the sounds. Can I just say how happy I am that finally. Taylor has arrived at the place where he can injure himself doing absolutely nothing. Is this is this what being a grown up is? I can pull my neck while stretching in the morning. Hey Jen, I just want to let you know this is a perfect time for you to say Taylor is a pain in the neck. No, I have a pain in the neck. Oh no 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 no! He's totally right. Oh. I'm 100 percent with you. Yes, he yeah. is. Taylor, you're a pain in the neck. <laughs> I'm well, sorry, thank buddy. you. Thank you for that. I, I love you, but you're just a pain in the neck. So, sorry, buddy. Okay, bye. This has been the Taylor and Jen Podcast. You can hear more from Taylor and Jen weekday mornings online at life1071.com or on the Life 107.1 app.